this program is going to flow hopefully at least that's what's planned uh, we'll um, uh, be considering the weather in a second as soon as I can get it up on my screen apparently apparently it's not uh, function oh here it is so as far as the BBC weather forecasters are concerned um, uh, they're predicting uh, a dry and uh, fine day for many but rain will linger across northern areas for uh, this morning so that's the weather according to the BBC forecasters there is some detail but um, I think we'll leave that until um, Imam Toki can uh, actually appraise us of that uh, right um uh, the details are that it will be a bright start for most, uh, but parts of northern England and southern Scotland will uh, see some lingering rain. The afternoon promises plenty of warm sunshine and a few showers in places. And later on in the evening, we'll have thicker cloud and outbreaks of blust- <coughs> blustery rain, uh, which will move into the northwest this evening and into the night. Uh, it will remain dry and clear elsewhere, but rain will uh, reach the northeast by dawn. So that's the weather. So no longer the sweltering heat that uh, we were s- suffering or enjoying, depending on your standpoint, uh, a week ago with temperatures uh, reaching uh, record levels, 40 degrees centigrade. Uh, but it's a mild, uh, typical uh, English uh, morning and day that we're going to be experiencing today. As far as... Um, the news uh, items cons- uh, that are circulating around in the wider media are concerned. I suppose what has uh, dominated uh, our uh, <coughs> uh, TV screens and newspapers is uh, the leadership debates. We've been covering this here on Friday uh, quite keenly. Uh, there ha- hasn't been much change the, uh, in the leadership battle between the two candidates. Um, that's um, Foreign Secretary Liz Truss and uh, the uh, Chancellor or the former Chancellor Rishi Sunak. Um, in the leadership ba- battle between the two, uh, the uh, Foreign Secretary still remains in a strong lead amongst the party members. Uh, and in one debate that was completed last week, uh, Rishi Sunak uh, may have argued a better case, but his bullish manner interrupting his opponent uh, time and again went against him. And he failed to close uh, the gap that has uh, been there ever since these um, hustings had started um, after the two reached um, the became the most popular among the um, conservative MPs uh, for this particular office uh, of prime minister. Last night's hustings, uh, they were conducted in Leeds, covered by LBC. Um, they don't have, appear to have changed much. Mr. Sunak still has his work cut out and he's way behind. And much of the difference, if there is a difference between the two candidates uh, that has emerged uh, from the debates, uh, it appears to be on the issue of taxation. Ms. Uh, Trust believes a cut in income tax will um, boost uh, productivity. A cut in income tax now and therefore steer us away from the threat of a recession. Uh, the former chancellor, however, is arguing that tax cuts are wrong and there will be the wrong action to take now. It'll be, it'll simply fuel a rise in inflation and an inflation that is already rising 
uh, is going to be further boosted by this kind of action. Uh, Mr. Sunak has also been criticized for U-turn on his cancellation of VAT on fuel. Um, something he resisted in doing when he was Chancellor. Uh, not a lot has been mentioned about the cost of living crisis or levelling up, but that's probably because, well, cynics would say, the candidates are wooing a Conservative electorate uh, who perhaps would not in the main fall into the just managing category. Um, all in all, unless there is a dramatic turnaround, it looks like Prime Minister Liz Truss is what we'll be finding ourselves uh, within uh, as a nation uh, come 5th of September uh, this uh, this year. Mentioned the um, uh, cost of living crisis fueled, if I if you pardon the pun, by the soaring energy bills that we're all having to suffer. Uh, great concern is being expressed about energy prices rising astronomically. Uh, predictions of typical bills rising to £500 a month are expected to become a reality. Uh, blame is being assigned to Russia uh, for reducing its gas supply by 20%. Uh, Russia claims that's only due to remedial works that are being conducted on its pipeline to the West. Some say it is quite a cheek for us to start blaming Russia when we are the ones that have slapped uh, sanction upon sanction on them and said that we will not be uh, uh, buying uh, any energy from them in the future. Um, but uh, leaving that aside, the steep increase in uh, household energy prices is due to supply and demand on the global wholesale market. And uh, this has driven up the amount providers pay for gas and electricity. And that cost is now being passed on to the consumer. At least uh, that's the theory. Uh, until we hear that uh, Shell and Centrica, those very providers of our uh, uh, energy, are raking in colossal profits. Yesterday, Centrica were reporting that their half-year profits uh, were five times higher than the year earlier. It rose from $262 million to $1.34 billion. That's the profits that they were, that's the six months. Uh, and this is when Shell uh, were also registering record profits uh, for April to June. Uh, this is uh, uh, one of the quarters, £9 billion pounds, uh, was the profits that they were re uh, registering. The criticism is how come they are um, registering such high profits and still charging household customers uh, over the odds? They say that, or their supporters say, that their energy supply business has not been performing well. So the um, part of the business that supplies energy to us, uh, that part is not doing so well. But when you examine their accounts and their activities more closely, you find that their profits, or the source of their profits, has been due to their nuclear and oil and gas business. So that's what um, is mentioned there. And there was also a, a, a parody, or should I say, a sarcastic comment that is also circulating on this, uh, quite a telling comment. It's saying that if uh, Margaret Thatcher hadn't uh, privatized these companies, then the £1.34 billion that is being reported by Centrica would be uh, uh, not handed to the uh, rich uh, shareholders uh, but instead be distributed to ordinary people through uh, the exchequer, and that's uh, a sobering thought. Um, 
the other element to all this is that there is um, a stark disparity in the amazing amounts being earned by chief executives of these companies, Centrica and uh, Shell. The pay of the chief executive of Shell rose by <laughs> by a quarter to £6 million in 2021, uh, while Centrica chief executive has earned £812,000. And this, these uh, very high sums earned by chief executives is at a time when workers are being denied pay rises that can match inflation so that they can earn enough to heat and eat. Uh, so it's a shocking indictment of um, the disparity that exists between the rich uh, and the poor, the very uh, rich executives and the poor work, uh, the less rich, or should I say, poor workers. RMT dispute over paid jobs and pensions. I mean, they're asking for, I think, um, over what is being offered. Uh, they are being offered 4% uh, for the remainder of this year and possibly 4% next year. Uh, um, RMT are asking for 7%, uh, which is well below inflation. That is 9.4% at the moment. So th- there is that uh, unfortunate issue that exists uh, in society at the moment, that there is uh, a growing gulf, it seems to uh, be apparent that exists between uh, uh, rich and the poor, and that gulf seems to be this seems to be widening, uh, showing no prospect of narrowing. Hence, uh, the prospect of strikes uh, that uh, is looming over our heads and uh, is said probably to uh, remain until uh, something uh, is done about this. Um, I mentioned earlier that uh, Imam Tokit Amir is, uh, is with us. Um, I've um, said a lot in the first 10-12 minutes. It's best if I pass uh, the mic on to somebody more sensible, more learned. So over to you, Imam Tokit Amir. Thank you for your, <coughs> obviously, introduction and... Uh, uh, the the first uh, 12 minutes of the show uh, where you go through some of the main news mm. <coughs> or also during this um, first part of the section we also do discuss uh, what are some of the activities which are happening around the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and uh, one particular activity, a, a real buzz you know, which everyone is involved in is with regards to the annual convention which is taking place next week from the uh, from uh, Friday to Sunday from 5th, 6th and 7th of August. And uh, <clears throat> this is the annual convention and it's important to note that uh, it was initiated at the time of the Promised Messiah, peace be upon him, the founder of the Amdi Muslim community, Azad Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, peace be upon him. And uh, this had initiated in ni- 1891 and uh, had announced that the newly initiated convention uh, would continue annually every year on the 27th of December. And accordingly, in 1892, the members of the community tra- would travel to Qadian, which is the small place which was the center of Ahmadiyyat at that time. And people would gather gathered there for the annual convention, and uh, they would also be blessed in, within the company of the promised Messiah, peace be upon him. 
So also, uh, we see that the annual convention which had taken place in 1892, it became known as the big jalsa among those attending. And the <clears throat> and the Tariqe Ahmadiyyad Day pants how this jalsa was held next to the pond in Qadian. The stage was built from mud collection from it and around the pond. And the promised Messiah, <clears throat> peace be upon him, he sat upon the raised platform on which carpet had been laid. And the members were then seated around on the floor. And uh, there is a there is also a program uh, which was then the proceedings, this historic proceedings, um, was taken. For example, it says that on the 27th of December, the first speech was delivered by the <coughs> um, Hazrat Maulana uh, Nuruddin, um, may God Almighty be pleased with him, who is the first, who later became the first Caliph of Islam on the death of Jesus. And thereafter, uh, a poem was recited. And uh, it says that the promised Messiah then delivered a very powerful lecture regarding a section of this of his book, Tozi Marham, that de- that dealt with angels, Muslim clerics, and had raised objectives against it. And the and the speech had a profound effect upon those present. And it says that on the on the twenty eighth of December there was also a shura which was held. Um, and they discussed various plans on how they could spread the message of Islam across Europe and America. And approximately 40 prominent companions had contributed and presented their ideas. Uh, the gathering, which decided to create a detailed leaflet portraying the beautiful teachings of Islam and distribute it for free in Europe and America. And a council was also taken on on building a press in Qadian and a list of those companions were also reco- recorded who would contribute to this project. So uh, very beautifully it shows that how uh, those companions, they were dedicated in propagating Islam and even at the time of the Promised Messiah, they were busy and uh, and planning uh, how they could uh, propagate the message of Islam in Europe, in America, and how they could dispatch um, the magazines of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community at that time. Um, and as it mentions here, that a council was held um, <clears throat> and uh, they considered that a that there should be a building for a press in Qadian. So um, what are the objectives of the annual convention? Because this is something which the Ahmadiyya Muslim holds on a yearly basis. So in the in the words of the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, he explains on the purpose and blessings of the annual convention. He says that the primary purpose of this convention is to enable every sincere individual to personally experience religious benefits that may enhance their knowledge and due to their due to their being blessed and enabled by Allah the Exalted, their perception of Allah may progress. And among its secondary benefits is that this congregational meeting together will promote mutual introduction among all brothers and it will strengthen the uh, further uh, ties within the community. So very beautifully explains that the whole purpose is that uh, one may develop that relationship with God Almighty, increase his knowledge 
and develop that brotherhood amongst uh, amongst all those brothers present. In another place, he s- explains that <clears throat> it is essential for all those who can afford to undertake the journey. They then that they must come to attend this convention, which embodies many blessed objectives, and they should disregard minor inconveniences in the cause of Allah and His Prophet, peace be upon Him. And Allah yields rewards to the to the sincere persons at every step of their way, and no labor and hardship undertaken in His way ever goes to waste. And I re-emphasize that you must not rank this convention in the same league as other ordinary human assemblies. And this is a phenomenon that is based purely on the divine help for propagation of Islam. I mean, I, I myself um, was at the site um, just yesterday. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of one of the departments I was helping with, I mean, it's important to note that uh, the whole setup of the Jalsa, it's, uh, although there are various contractors and they deal with the um, <coughs> with the setting up the, the place, um, at the same time there is a majority of those members of the MDM community who voluntarily um, have been going there for the past few weeks for the setup of the of the site and uh, I myself uh, was involved in serving um, those youth members from around the UK um, who would go, who who have been coming to the site and we have been supplying manpower to various other projects which have been taking place on the site for example uh, there is a lot of flooring which takes place so it's um, a lot of these marquees they're just tents um, and a flooring has to be a wooden flooring has to be laid and then an underlaying has to be laid a carpet has to be laid so th- there's a lot of work um, which is taken for that so the MDA Muslim Youth Association they are also actively involved in helping these various departments um, and uh, th- this 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 department also which is known as the Jalsa Salana Waqfi Arzi they are uh, their whole duty is that uh, all those members of the youth association that uh, do come to the site that department then allocates those members to various other departments who need manpower in terms of flooring uh, any anything else site related um, MTA for example they have their various projects they're building studios um, mobile studios there so they they need help with the setup so th- there's a lot of various action a, lo- a lot of work which has been currently taking place um, and uh, it's it's very important to get involved I mean some of the youth members which have attended um, I was speaking to them and some of them they've never uh, met the uh, the caliph of the time um, and uh, we, we took them to the fr- uh, to the morning prayer, and they were just so moved that you know they experienced praying behind His Holiness, seeing His Holiness for the first time. So it it was a very moving experience, um, and uh, just just to get that feel of of brotherhood, because a lot of these members, you know, who do come and volunteer, um, they have migrated from Pakistan, and in Pakistan there there is a lot of restrictions on the community. You know, they they cannot. 
partake in the annual convention. I was speaking to one of the brothers and he was telling me that, you know, this is, uh, the last convention uh, which had taken place was in, I believe, 1984 in, in Pakistan, which took place. So he was saying that he, he was actually born just uh, the year after. Mm. And uh, now he's here in, in the UK. He's almost going to be 40. And he said that I've never seen I've never seen an annual convention in my life. I've always wanted to, but I've never seen it. But just because I've migrated here now, this is my first annual convention that I'll be blessed to attend. Um, so, you know, you'll, you'll meet such members who are very eager. And this is their first Jalsa Salana, their first annual convention. Uh, so it's very moving to hear such incidents. Um, and uh, as, as mentioned to our listeners, uh, we will be presenting live next week. So do tune in to the Voice of Islam radio station as we will be uh, doing a Friday morning Jalsa Salana special. So do tune in to that. Mm-hmm. So, so it's a huge exercise that is undertaken in the preparation of the Jalsa. The whole site has to be virtually built. Uh, and it's done by volunteers. It's, it's done by volunteers, mm-hmm. absolutely. And it also has to, because this is this whole piece of land is a farm itself. Mm-hmm. So the the regu- the rules and regulations by the council is that um, you know it should be set up uh, during the annual convention. And once the annual convention has taken place, there should be a wind up of mm-hmm. everything. So we see that within those span of one to two months, that setup is there and then then removed so mm. the site can move back to its original form which mm-hmm. is which is a farm so mm-hmm. it's a, it's a great initiative uh, which mm-hmm. takes place and i think it's a great chance for brothers from from around the uk and even even around the world because we've had uh, from our from our department that we are currently serving and there there have been uh, youth members who have come from canada from ghana so uh, there, there was another brother who's just recently migrated from the Gambia, mm-hmm. um, and you know this is also his first Chelsea in the UK. So he, he he's also very much looking forward to it. And a lot of these uh, brothers who have come, they are staying on the site, uh, staying there for for a week, and mm-hmm. just helping out in other departments who need help. Right. Um, and once that's done, they'll be mm-hmm. then attending the Chelsea, and after that they'll be going home so excellent excellent all right we have to move on um very interesting uh, what's happening and uh, as uh, imam Tokir has said that the uh, next uh, broadcast that we will be doing uh, this is uh, the friday broadcast will be from uh, that very site uh, uh, so do make sure that you tune in next week um we have to move on to the um, topics that we were going to focus our attention in the two main topics um, and the first one is to do with uh, optimism apparently it uh, it may this is a question that we're going to be uh, we are going to be posing uh, may promote health uh, the other topic is how kindness affects mental health that'll be discussing that's something we'll be discussing later but this one is something we picked up from the um, um, one of the medical uh, websites it says the effect of optimism on health uh, is the study that it's reporting on and uh, the gist is mentioned as follows that it is a universal and powerful human need uh, an integral part of all our lives uh, that is hope uh, while hope may have a special meaning for religious believers 
believing in a benevolent God who protects them, uh, the crucial presence of hope is secular and universal. Uh, During periods of major turbulence in our lives, hope serves as a personal beacon, much as a lighthouse uh, beckons sailors during periods of darkness and stormy seas. Um, So various issues, I suppose, uh, can be extrapolated from this. Uh, One is uh, what uh, we mean by optimism. Um, according to many psychologists, so there is a clinical understanding of what this is, uh, optimism uh, refers to the conviction that most events or experiences will have favorable results. Other argue, uh, others argue that optimism is more of an explanation style. It manifests itself in how people frame the reasons behind things. The causes of failure or negative experiences are more likely to be transient than permanent, specific than general, and external rather than internal in the eyes of optimists. Optimists can more readily recognize the possibility of change with such a mindset. Optimism as a tool for better mental and uh, physical health uh, is also uh, an issue. It's uh, Uh, Optimism is said to be a powerful health tonic. Uh, This is according to more than five decades of studies. So that's what they seem to have been suggesting, uh, the results of these these particular studies. Uh, People that are positive maintain their health and live longer. Even when risk factors are controlled in the studies, they had superior cardiovascular health, a stronger immune system, and less stress and suffering. And healthy individuals who are optimistic report feeling better than similarly healthy individuals who are pessimistic. People who are upbeat recover more quickly from negative health events like uh, orthopedic or coronary or heart uh, or artery bypass surgery. The fact that they had uh, higher survival rates following diagnosis of cancer, types one, uh, type 1 diabetes, and uh, HIV or AIDS, as well as better quality of life, even decades later, is perhaps most uh, is perhaps most uh, impressive. So, it seems that uh, the indicators of uh, optimism um, um, is very, are, are very positive as far as uh, our health is concerned. Um, a mood of optimism, uh, known as hope, is based on the anticipation of favorable results from events and situations in one's life or the wider world. Its definitions uh, as a verb include to treasure a desire with anticipation and anticipate with confidence. Uh, And optimism is needed, or hope is uh, needed, is the desire for result that improves your life in some way. It not only helps to make a difficult situation in the present more bearable, but it also has a potential to enhance our lives Uh, in the long run, uh, since uh, hoping for a better future inspire uh, us to take positive uh, actions uh, towards the outcome we desire. We will be joined by Steve Jones, hopefully, (coughs) uh, later on in the course of this particular part of the program um, to uh, look at this and to explore this particular topic uh, further. Uh, So uh, while we're waiting, I'm going to hand the mic on to uh, Imam Tukit um, and to add to what we've already mentioned. 
Yes, uh, so I mean this is a very interesting topic um, looking at the subject of optimism um, and you know when because quite often you know uh, this question is asked that uh, how can how can you you know keep yourself happy or how can you uh, there are some people who do have um, you know who do would say that uh, quite often they are pessimistic so it's it's a very interesting topic mm. uh, but I do believe that we are joined by our guest yes um, so brother believe if you can please introduce well, our uh, yes uh, S- Steve Jones uh, uh, is with us uh, he's uh, um, uh, he's from Change Therapy. Um, he has personal experience of using positive psychology, which helped him make a full recovery from a heart attack in 2015. Psychologist and counselor uh, is, is uh, Steve Jones. Um, so without uh, further um, spending time on the introduction, let, me, let us talk to Steve. Uh, thank you very much for coming on to uh, join us on The Breakfast Show, Steve Jones. Good morning. Good morning. Okay. Um, can you tell us, um, I understand you represent change therapy. Uh, what is change therapy and uh, how did you get started? Yes, good morning to all the listeners. Um, change therapy was something I set up because there seems to be a gap in the services in the UK where people who have a traumatic event like a heart attack they can't access help you know in the therapies um, like the talking and listening therapies waiting lists are often years and you really need help very quickly to recover so I put my skills to use and set up change therapy and offered um, my psychology skills and these were free at the time mm-hmm. and uh, the response was fantastic you know they said why is this free okay. um, because we, we want to help each other mm-hmm. how, you know, how, what's the mode of delivery how do you how can people access that's your service and how you do deliver it? I only do online. Well, during COVID, it was always online. I did Zoom mm. calls and um, email. And before COVID, I was taking people out for walks in nature. Mm-hmm. So it was never an office base. It was say, like, we'd meet at a public place and we'd go for a walk and talk. And I would just try and help people to come to terms with what's going on in their lives. And we'd go through some um, strategies to improve their outlook on life. Mm. Uh, You know, they've been through a traumatic event. And that's life changing for the whole family. So I would suggest some things about changing their outlook as having a second chance in life. And trying to change their their way of seeing that things can be more positive. You've had a negative experience, so let's try and make the most of what we've got now. Mm. Mm. So, in this in this kind of therapy, I mean, where does optimism fit in exactly? Then, 
Um, like I've just just said before, it's hmm. it's very negative when anything happens to you through health. You have an illness of any type, and it puts you into a cycle of well, a negative cycle, say of being depressed and anxious about things, worrying. So if you can be more optimistic that in the future things will get better then mm. this is why uh, you try and promote optimism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's about trying to tell people who are in a, in a negative sort of um, cycle that through time, if you can believe that positive things will come to you, your health will improve. Okay. That's basically, basically right. mm, it is difficult if you okay. are in... No, but it can be done. When we're working uh, with people, are you finding that by nature the people are of different types? Some people are naturally optimistic and easy, therefore, to work with, whereas other people are naturally pessimistic and therefore difficult uh, to change? Yeah, there's, there are differences um, when people are... Their upbringing may be that they've lived in a more pessimistic um, family or uh, amongst people, and there are those who are more optimistic. Mm. It depends again. It's just on their upbringing and the environment they were in and their life experiences. But people, if they come to me, then they're saying in a way they want to change. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the first thing is through, oh. through any therapy. Is coming to the appointment means that they want to try and change. Because mm -hmm. if they didn't, they wouldn't turn up. Mm. You know, they wouldn't be there. Yeah. Um, yeah. But sometimes it might be that I said, look, what you need to do is go and talk to somebody or, mm -hmm. and they might feel pushed into coming along. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But as I'm not really linked to the health service, I get private appointments and people will say, mm. or their partners might say to me, look, my husband's been through a, um, he's had a heart attack, he's feeling miserable sitting at home, can you help him? Mm -hmm. and, and that's when I'll come in and say, yeah, sure, um, I can relate to a lot of what he's been through and I'm walking proof that life can get better mm -hmm. it wouldn't be the same but we can improve it right and that's that's basically what i'm doing yeah uh steve my colleague will be asking you a few, a few questions but before he does that you mentioned that it used to be free does that mean that uh it's, it's you're charging now no i'm uh -huh. not right. um not not as such ah not as such uh, Okay. Well, that's, that's a big question. If, if you if you say you're free, people ask him, well, why why are you free? Mm -hmm. Well, the the reason for that is that I'm still on um, it's called a sickness benefit since uh, having my heart attack that I can never fully work full you know full time again. So what I do is I work part time, and I suggest that in a bit uses my services and donate to a charity like the British Heart Foundation. 
or you know whoever okay. they choose. Okay. Okay. And that's a way of payment. Right. Okay. No. Very interesting. Thanks very much. Uh, here's my colleague. Uh, thank you for joining us, uh, Steve, this morning. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, a lot of the clients that do visit you um, who are having, uh, you know, who are, who are not that optimistic or they, they may be um, feeling very pessimistic or unhappy. In your therapy, do you bring religion into into the equation or, or you don't touch religion? What, what do you, what's your thoughts on this? I don't bring religion into it. Anything, my personal viewpoints are nothing to do with the client. You know, they can they come in as a person, yeah. a human being, and I'll treat them as such. When it can be any faith or color, mm. that doesn't matter. It's about helping a fellow human being. Mm. Great, thank you so much. And how much does optimism affect uh, health and healing power? What's, what's your view on this? Well, I could, if I could take my own experience of having a heart attack as an example, um, and maybe other people can relate to this. About 10 years ago, I, would be, I was working very hard with long hours trying to make ends meet to provide for my family. And these were very stressful times. I didn't get a lot of sleep. You'd maybe have a drink at night and I smoked a lot. And my eating was not the best, you know, eating on the run. And that took a toll on my well being. Mm. And obviously my heart didn't cope and I had a heart attack. Mm. Now after this near miss with death, I stopped working in a stressful job, changed my diet stop smoking, drinking, and enter the new chapter of life, one of hope for my future. And I recovered faster than the doctors anticipated. My weight went down, the bags under my eyes from stress and lack of sleep disappeared, and I was a nicer person to be around. So, you know, within months from someone who was treading water, trying to make a decent living, there I was, a new person, and um, I, it just hasn't stopped. Everything is it's this second life. Uh, sorry, this second chance of life, mm. and I've grabbed it. And I think that you know, with help and support, other people can do the same. Absolutely. So healthy eating, you know, healthy eating and exercise. We're all told about that. It's in the newspapers and magazines and. And the young people you know, want to do their own things, obviously, you know, and they don't think about later life. But the body it will take its toll on your life, on your on your body. With you know, if you're doing the wrong things, you're not exercising and not eating healthier. As I found out, because we all think we're indestructible, I think <laughs> until something until something happens, you know, we all do, and it's just. You know, I'm unfortunate that, you know, I got through it and I really don't want another heart attack. So it's either stay on pills and wait for it to happen again mm. or actually believe in the future and you know, you know that you can do your very best in all these areas, then you're not going back into hospital. 
No, sir, it's a very uh, fantastic uh, recovery. Um, yeah. And, you know, you've worked very hard on yourself, so um, well done for that. Um, yeah. Um, so what steps can individuals or families make to increase optimism? And can it be learned or taught? It can be taught if you want to learn it. If, if you don't want to, you know, it's a choice people have. Uh, if you surround yourself by people who think and talk negatively, you know, they're always saying you can't do this, you shouldn't do that, or blaming, and, you know, you'll come to accept that that is how your life path is set out. But if you surround yourself by people who look at life more positively and talk positively, you know, you will then get a happier outlook on life. You'll, you'll come to believe that not everything is negative and doom and gloom and you'll start to look for the the happier things in life, the good things if you understand what I'm saying mm. um, you know absolutely and you know do you think a lot of people have the, this perception that uh, life isn't that happy or is miserable um, do, you, do you think there's a lot of people that are like that, which which yes. feel like that? Yes, there are, and a lot of it comes from what our, you know, the government, our media, mm. they're always out. You know, if you look at the newspaper, you're on online looking at news sites. It's always negative news. It's always the bad. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, the government always saying, oh, "This is wrong with the country." You know. If you keep reading this every day, you'll start to actually believe that it's a pretty negative world we live in. Mm. But there are so many positive aspects of life. You know, if you just look outside, you can look for, you know, appreciate the blue sky that you're seeing. Well, I don't know if you look out now, I don't know if it's blue or grey, but <laughs> you, you understand it if you're looking for, you look for the positive things. Um, and there, there are some examples, it's just, you know, um, you're having trouble maybe getting from your seat to the front door or maybe getting to walk to the shops, you find it difficult. But if you look at it a different way, you, you've actually, you can walk, even though it might be slow and you need support. And there's so many people that don't have that ability so it's looking for the positives as much as possible. Absolutely. You know, you train your brain to mm. start looking for the good in somebody. Absolutely. Or the, the good in world. It, is, it can be difficult. Again, as I keep saying, it depends on your upbringing. And if your mum and dad have brought you up to um, do things in certain ways, then to change to be your own person can be challenging, but it can be done. Absolutely. And and just lastly, uh, Steve, last question from my side, and I'll pass the mic on to our host, Brother Valid. What are your best tips for our listeners to increase their optimism? Well, as I said before, just try and notice the good things when they happen. Um, if you're in a job that's pretty poor, you're not enjoying it you just think well it's better than not having any job 
you can train your mind just to look for good in situations. And one last thing I'd say is to try and smile more. When you smile, that smile, the, the movement there, tells your brain to release chemical hormones which contribute to a sense of well-being. Endorphins, serotonin, dopamine, look them up on the internet. These these flood into your body and they just give you a more sense of well-being of you feel fitter and healthier so smile try it now mm. if you're driving your car just have a wee smile and it can, it can these things can help and surround yourself by more positive people mm. yes interesting advice there um do you think that this, I mean, I suppose what you really do is change people's thinking and uh, their uh, the way that they are viewing their future. Uh, do you think that's also a recipe for complacency, people not taking things seriously as a result? Yes. Um, How do you manage that then? Well, people... When I take people out for a walk in nature, we do walk and talk, which is a mixture of um, well, hand listening, it's more of counselling skills, and just giving them strategies to improve. Some people think, oh, this is just mumbo-jumbo. It's, you know, we're walking around, looking at trees and breathing, using breathing exercises, mm-hmm. and they're not seeing immediate results. It's I do explain to people that it, it's it's not like you have a magic wand and you can change somebody's outlook to be more optimistic. Within weeks, it mm. takes practice at home, um, trying mindfulness, um, more relaxation. Okay. And it just, it just takes time. It could take, you know, months. Okay. But we can get there. And it's uh, it's hard work. Nothing, mm. nothing's, nothing's easy. Nothing's mm. No quick fix. But, you know, look at me, you know, and I say, I've done it. I'd like you to do it. And people okay. like to be tested. Okay. Now, now, where do you stand on the on the uh, issue of drugs to help people feel better? I mean, feeling good medicines. Prozac was once quite uh, often used in, in the States. I mean, uh, that yeah. also means of uh, raising people's spirits. Do you think that's uh, a, a, good, a good way to go about things? to engender optimism? Yeah, um, it's, it's got... I'm not a doctor. I'm, I'm not in that field. Mm. I'm not going to pretend to. It's, I think different people need different things. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, med, medical experts says that you know, we should be on drugs, that's fine. But I do believe that um, alternative therapies like um, psychotherapy and mindfulness can benefit and it might be that we could with the doctor's help you could wean yourself off the drugs over time mm-hmm. you know to see if these um, positive hormones you're releasing in your brain can sort of um, take away the need for so many drugs right Right. Because I can't say, oh, just come off the drugs and let's go out and let's um, talk and I'll change you because I can't do that. Okay, good. Um, so you can maybe just use me as a, a supplement to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And over time, 
with the, again, you've got to, I've got to emphasize it. Speak to your doctor and tell them, look, you're going out with Steve, and here's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And it's then the doctor's sort of um, decision to say, okay, we'll take you off this drug, um, and see how we go, because mm-hmm. we're playing with people's lives here. Mm-hmm. Um, no, great. Uh, I think it's great work that you're doing. Um, uh, what's the website again if people want to access your uh, services? Just remind um, our listeners. www.changetherapy.org.uk Okay. Anyway, I wish you all the best in the future, Steve. Uh, Thank you. Uh, psychologist and counsellor. Uh, want somebody who's formed his own psychotherapy uh, business. And he's providing support for adults who have experienced traumatic health events and need access support, not only to recover from illness, but to provide a more optimistic outlook in their uh, lives. Noble work that you're engaged in. Wish you all the best in the future. Thank you very much for coming on to speak to us. Yes. Do you want to say something before uh, we go? uh, Yes, I did. um, I was quite successful helping survivors of heart attacks. I did diversify. I helped adults and parents of autistic children uh-huh. um, and I have one or two of these that um, come on mindfulness walks okay. and then I've started to take groups out with charities of um, neurodiverse adults so we go for walks and, right. and just try and help them relax so I'm not just um, open up for people who had heart attacks okay no, thanks for that for that clarification. Thank you once again, sir, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, Imam Zaki, uh, we've got a, f- a couple of minutes before the news. Uh, if you would like to add anything regarding uh, maybe the Islamic concept. Yes. Um, I mean, it, it, you know, I, I, I would once again like to thank Steve, you know, for, for coming on. And it's a remarkable work that he is doing. Mm. Um, someone who has... You know, gone gone through a heart attack. He's not only recovered from it in such a really good way. Um, he's worked hard on himself, but he's also helping others. Mm. <laughs> and and he mentioned that he's doing this um, on a for free. He's he's not taking any charge, no. and and he's helping those individuals. Um, and I I agree in in a way that uh, with Steve that technology is also one reason. <laughs> that uh, why a lot of people um, are moving more towards disparity and uh, think feeling more pessimistic because mm. the, the thing is uh, what he was mentioning is that he, he takes a lot of his uh, patients or outside and enjoy the nature, enjoy the weather and uh, it makes people happy um, so rather than just maybe staying all day in your house uh, having the TV on, um, you know, you, you would get a feeling of anxiety or despair, uh, or even feel pessimistic. So, mm. rather than that, the the best thing to do is enjoy the nature of of uh, God Almighty and uh, and uh, really really take it in, and that will make you happy. Mm. Um, and if we look at the teachings of Islam, uh, you know. Go, God Almighty actually says that uh, to the believers um, in chapter 15, verse 56, and those who can despair the mercy of his Lord, save those who go astray. And another verse, God Almighty says in chapter 8, verse 33, and Allah uh, would not punish them while they seek forgiveness. So 
God Almighty, He He says in the Holy Quran that we should not uh, have feelings of despair or hopelessness, and uh, we should ultimately um, have complete trust in God Almighty. And uh, so, after the eight o'clock news, we'll be looking more into the Islamic perspective of this. Uh, particular segment um, and uh, after that then we'll move on to our second segment but if any of our listeners do want to contribute remember you can do so by calling us on 0286877878 so we'll be back shortly after the 8 o'clock news uh, in the name of Allah the gracious the merciful peace be upon you and welcome back to the breakfast show you are joined today by myself Toki Ramadan brother Valid uh, from here from the studio of Voice of Islam and we're still discussing the first segment uh, the question on how does optis- optimism promote mental health um, and uh, we did speak to Steve uh, today who who himself uh, had an heart attack but uh, later he recovered um, and uh, now he is also helping others uh, in this particular field and how they can um, how they can recover from uh, from a difficult experience within their life or just generally if someone is unhappy and fantastic work that he is doing um, so now we are looking at the Islamic perspective on this so there are many Quranic verses and prophetic narration that mention hope and stories of people from previous communities. And in those verses and narrations, the people of God are never described as being despair and hopeless. And the aim is to encourage Muslims to not give up in life and rekindle hope in them. And one, And when one loses all hope, of ever solving one's difficulties they are in despair and this is the result of lack of reliance on and faith in god in many verses of the holy quran believers are told to be hopeful as mentioned in the holy quran in chapter 15 verse 56 where god almighty says in the name of allah the gracious the merciful and who can despair of the mercy of his lord save those uh, who go astray And in this verse, Allah reminds us of the power of His mercy and the importance of asking for forgiveness. And mercy and compassion are some of the most awe-inspiring acts of Allah. And as a Muslim, we should take hope in the fact that with constant and sincere prayers for forgiveness, we can be forgiven. Um, And this verse reminds us that we should always hold on the hope that uh, we can always ask for forgiveness and mercy. And it mentions in the the Holy Quran in chapter 65 verse 3, And he who puts his trust in Allah, he is sufficient for him. Verily, Allah will accomplish his purpose for everything Allah has appointed a measure. And this verse uh, serves as a source of hope. For those who feel alone in this world by remembering that Allah is and will always be enough for us and we can take hope in the fact that we will never in fact be alone in this world and knowing that Allah is there for for us all can serve as an important reminder and that we can that that all we ever need in is faith in Allah and knowledge of the Holy Quran and that's such a beautiful answer that 
ultimately uh, if we see life uh, even our day ones um, you know not everyone's going to be around us sometimes we might have a best friend uh, who's, who's always been there with us through college or primary school um, but we see that sometimes in a different phase of our life that friend will not always be there um, and you can take that example even with someone close to you that although someone very dear to you and someone who supports you all the time he is there but uh, they will not always be there but uh, rest assured that Allah the Almighty will always be there so as a Muslim one should always put his trust in Allah the Almighty and uh, this example is so profound from the life of the Holy Prophet peace be upon him that we see that every aspect of his life uh, whether he was in uh, difficulty or whether he was in ease he would always remember Allah the Almighty in any uh, aspect of his life for Allah for, for the support of Allah the Almighty um, you know we, we see that there's a prayer for for so many things like for example entering the mosque leaving the mosque eating if you're if you're walking um, you know before starting everything you should say Bismillahirrahmanirrahim in the name of Allah the gracious the most so every aspect of his life the holy prophet peace be upon him he always remembered Allah the almighty and he put his full trust in Allah the almighty and this is what Allah the almighty says in the holy quran that that truly it is the remembrance of Allah the Almighty that hearts truly find comfort. And uh, although if we look in a, within Islam, we have the five daily prayers um, that a Muslim, uh, he is instructed that he should offer his five daily prayers five times a day. But apart from that, there are many other prayers uh, which one's, one recites on a daily basis in remembering Allah the Almighty. As I mentioned, that uh, there are so many prayers that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, would continuously recite, continuously remember Allah the Almighty. Um, and apart from that, prayer itself, uh, a huge emphasis is laid on prayer that uh, a Muslim should always remember Allah the Almighty. And it is mentioned that it shouldn't just be one should be individually praying, but we should all try to pray in congregation uh, in the mosque. And there's there's a very interesting narration of this that uh, once a blind man, he approached the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and he said that uh, I'm a blind man and uh, I find it difficult to go to the mosque uh, due to the fact that I am blind and the Holy Prophet peace be upon him he inquired to him that well can you hear the can you hear the call of prayer and he said yes the Holy Prophet peace be upon him, I can I can hear the call of prayer uh, from where I am from where my house is and the Holy Prophet peace be upon him said then you also are not exempt from attending the prayer at the mosque so from this narration we realize what what great emphasis the Holy Prophet peace be upon him laid in praying, not only praying, but praying in the mosque in congregation, uh, that he did not even exempt a person who was blind to to attend the mosque. And he said that if you can hear the call for prayer, then you should still make every effort to attend this. So what's the reason for this? The whole reason for focusing so much on your prayer is that 
you truly have that connection with Allah the Almighty and have that reliance on Him that every aspect of your life, you know, you put that trust in Allah the Almighty and be satisfied that truly things would get better and Allah the Almighty will always, um, you know, He He will make things better and uh, hopefully the, the matter will be resolved. And this is what we find in uh, the life of the promised Messiah, peace be upon Him as well that uh, he truly had full conviction in Allah the Almighty and in uh, in aspects of his life when there was adversity uh, you know we see that he wasn't worried or uh, you know a sense of anxiety but rather uh, a trust in God Almighty that things would get better and even if we look at the the Khulafa, the successors of the of the promised Messiah, peace be upon him. I mean, Brother Walid, you spent a remarkable time with the fourth caliph of the Amdi Muslim community, and, and you know, you've seen how, at various places within his life, how much trust he had in Allah the Almighty. Um, that even in in uh, places where, you know, someone, a natural person, would get worried, we see that uh, from 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 the from our Khulafa that they have always put that trust in Allah the Almighty and uh, and and uh, you know just prayed that the the whatever the adversity is would get resolved and uh, and and it would always get resolved and uh, things would get better no certainly certainly I think um, with uh, the fourth caliph I mean what was remarkable is his journey from uh, Pakistan to to UK uh, during that crisis when uh, draconian laws were passed against the community. Um, the head of the community uh, was brave enough, put his trust in God and exited the country as, uh, you know, with his full dress mm. as a caliph, uh, not fearing anyone, not wanting to conceal his identity. Uh, and he managed to manage to leave the country despite the fact that instructions had been given uh, for his arrest, but he was not going to be departing the country like a fugitive, and that shows his courage and the fact that courage then does flow from uh, from what you were mentioning earlier about your trust in God and putting your trust in God and and remembering God. Uh, that uh, that courage was very much uh, exemplified in that particular event. But it was exemplified in so many other uh, cases. No, that. That's just basically one one mm. aspect mm. Of, of his life. And even if we look at the, the fifth caliph of the Amdhi, strength in his hand, um, you would remember as well that in 2010 when the Lahore attacks took place in, in our mosque um, and a lot of the members of the Amdhi Muslim community were martyred, um, it was a Friday and uh, his only the incident had taken place earlier before the Friday prayer, and naturally, being a, a leader of the, of a community, um, mm. if if something like that has taken place, you know, a person would naturally become worried. But we see that uh, how p- much patient his holiness showed, and that, w- that sort of love he showed um, to those victims that had that were part of this uh, martyrdom and you know mm. how how he comforted them it's it's so remarkable mm. uh, how called he did them that personally, didn't he called them every, every family personally every, every per- family personally mm. and uh, you know they, they these families then um, you know we saw their documentaries as well on MTA how 
they felt so much comfort after speaking to the Khalifa of the Amdi Muslims that he personally uh, mm. would uh, take his time out, his busy, busy schedule and speak to those individual families and comfort them and support them. Um, and, it, you know, honestly, that, that truly is remarkable. And it shows that uh, a person should always put his full conviction, full trust in Allah the Almighty. Um, and, uh, you know, then these feelings of disparity um, will then go away. And, you know, d- don't take uh, the wrong word for it. I mean, uh, if someone is in, in a bad state, he should seek mental advice. But then at the same time, um, someone who believes in Allah the Almighty um, should always also have that full conviction that, uh, you know, if, if I do pray to him that, inshallah, God be willing, things would get better. So um, just to conclude, uh, I'll, I think I'll read out a abstract of the, uh, here from the way of the seekers. Um, so it says here um, that we should also be watchful about fear. It must never exceed hope which should outweigh fear and in the heart of the faithful hope should therefore uh, dominate over fear uh, and this is from the writings of Azam Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmood Ahmed um, and he says that uh, uh, the promised Messiah peace when we emphasized the basis of faith uh, is hope and anticipation also it says that the Holy Prophet peace be upon him is reported to have said that God will treat his servants as he expects to be treated. Therefore, no system which breeds despair would be called Islamic. And we should also be very watchful about fear, that it must never exceed hope which would outweigh fear. And fear certainly is part of faith, but is never as as big as a part as hope. And Allah the Almighty, he says in the Holy Quran in chapter 7, verse 157, that I shall inflict my chastisement on those concerning whom I so determined. But my mercy encompasses all things. And in the heart of the faithful should therefore, um, hope should therefore dominate over fear. Uh, and uh, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, has also at one place uh, has directed that the khalaqubi akhlaqillah which means that uh, he said that adorn yourself with divine qualities so with that we'll conclude this particular uh, segment and I'll pass the mic on to brother Walid to then introduce us to the next segment right bismillahirrahmanirrahim in the name of Allah the gracious the merciful the next uh, part of the show is going to be focusing its attention on this particular item that we picked up from one of the websites, Corporate Wellness Magazine. And uh, the article uh, is about kindness. How does kindness affect mental health? Apparently it does. Uh, Around one in five, that is 21% of adults, it says, experience some form of depression in early 2021. Uh, This is an increase since November 2020, uh, and when 19% uh, experienced uh, some form of depression, and more than double that observed before this uh, this state before the COVID-19 pandemic, and uh, that uh, figure was 10% then. 
Uh, we're living in the midst of a mental health epidemic, this uh, piece uh, says, and it's clearer than ever that amongst boosting the array of professional solutions, kindness could be the secret to improving well-being. Showing love isn't just reserved for your partner on Valentine's Day. Uh, it can be extended to colleagues, friends, even strangers. Simply being kind to someone can make a massive difference in their outlook and general mood and your own. How can kindness as a practice be used as a tool within psychotherapy? And what are the advantages? So the science of kindness, it's been widely studied. And it has been found that it can uh, directly affect us on a psychological level. The secret, uh, researchers say, is oxytocin, often touted as the love hormone, which improves feelings of social connectedness and uh, positive feelings when released. It also fires up the uh, neutral networks <clears throat> the neural networks, should I say, so uh, the um, pathways, the electrical pathways, the nerve pathways, uh, related to reward when we are ki- kind or see other experience, others experience kindness. Oxytocin also directly affects the uh, amygdala uh, to reduce its activity, according to a study by Petrovich, uh, Kalisic, Singer, and Dolan. Uh, those with preconditioned fear and high levels of activity in the amygdala experienced a reduction in fear and amygdala activity when given a dose of oxytocin. For those with anxiety and depression, it may seem counterintuitive to focus on showing love and kindness to others when they may be in dire need of it themselves, but it's shown to be a quick and effective way of uh, boosting mood. Now, uh, we do have uh, somebody on the line to discuss this uh, f- uh, further. Dr. Larry Culliford, uh, I understand, is uh, with us. Let me just uh, use the right buttons to um, bring him on. Thank you very much for coming on, uh, Dr. Culliford. Can you hear me, Dr. Culliford? Hello. 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 I can hear you now. Thank you very yes, much for coming on. Yes, thank you very much for asking me. No, it's a pleasure. I understand you're a retired physician and psych- psychiatrist, long devoted to understanding mental health. And Well, uh, I, I am. I was a uh, physician and psychiatrist. I retired from clinical practice more than 10 years ago. So I've had a good chance to reflect more broadly on the topics that uh, you're discussing today. Okay. So, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, can you tell us about depression, what it is, and what are the common symptoms of this malaise? Yes, uh, uh, thank you. Yes, I I, I like to look at uh, this type of question under uh, four headings. So, the normal two headings that depression will be looked under, biology, I think you've already been discussing that, and the psychology, the thoughts, uh, behaviors and emotions uh, but I, I will talk about that briefly but I also want to mention the socio-cultural dimension or lens through which to look at depression and the spiritual dimension mm-hmm. so the biology is about the brain's anatomy and physiology how it works 
not only the nervous system but also the hormonal system, the endocrine system. Uh, and that's very complex but relatively uh, well understood uh, about what might be going wrong in terms of uh, neurotransmitter function in depression. But your question is, what is depression? Well, it's simply a word that means low mood. Uh, and low m mood disorders uh, come in a variety of uh, types. Uh, when I was a, a trainee in the 70s, we talked about uh, endogenous depression and reactive depression. So endogenous was um, uh, thought to be biologically based, possibly partly inherited, and reactive was some sort of reaction to circumstances, to losses or threats or impending loss of some kind, some some challenge to the individual. Actually, it's too simple. Very often, both aspects are involved, but it helps to get a little bit of a handle on depression. And also, we we remember that there's a, a third, another kind which we used to call manic depression or bipolar disorder, where the person is depressed at one time and then overactive and overexcited and elated at others. Um, often, quite a serious illness. So um, if we talk about the psychology briefly, then uh, we talk about the cognitions, negative thoughts. Uh, the person tends to have sent a sense of, is depressed, severely depressed, sense of uh, worthlessness and hopelessness and helplessness. So negative thoughts associated with these, which can be uh, and negative behaviors, so the person doesn't uh, engage with life, a joylessness as well and so the person doesn't really engage with life uh, and uh, that's the, where cognitive behavior therapy can come in to uh, help with uh, combating negative thoughts and behaviors uh, where the biology is concerned uh, the neurotransmitter function that's where medication comes in and in severe and extreme cases uh, electrical therapy ECT which is a, a rather a blunt instrument but it's sort of a bit like when you have to press the reset button on your computer or reboot it I mean it's a, it, it does literally stop the brain and get it allow it to start up again and refunction and in some severe cases of depression it can be very effective if rather scary thought mm. uh, have yeah. it done um, but moving on then just to talk about the socio-cultural and then the spiritual aspects of depression well, we're living in challenging and difficult times in which you could say that there's a dominant uh, science-dominated secular paradigm, that uh, materialism is rampant, that people are encouraged in our society to go after wealth, fame, power over other people. Uh, those are the kind of values that are inherent in a, in a, a commercialized uh, world, um, but um, that, that which are not themselves negative uh, 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 aims and ambitions, but they are if they don't dominate over and take over from what I might call spiritual ambitions of kindness, generosity, uh, honesty, and humility. If, if so, if if the if the search for power and wealth uh, 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 cast aside those other uh, more honourable values, then there is a problem for society, mm, mm. and uh, particularly so at a time like this when we've got 
cost of living rises, um, global warming, wars, and constant bad news of disasters, refugees and economic migrants in large numbers, some of whom are losing their lives trying to get to freedom, others getting themselves locked up and so on. Yeah. It's, it's a difficult time. And so it's, it's not actually that surprising that in the absence of a, a, a spiritual uh, overview or, or um, dom- dominating the materialism, then we have probably, you could say, epidemics of anxiety and depression and indeed of addictions. Addictions not only to drugs and alcohol, but also to things like shopping, uh, sex, uh, gambling and so on. There are widespread addictions, uh, pe- young people addicted to their mobile phones and the internet and so on. It's, it's, a, it's what people do to distract themselves from the bad news. Mm. Uh, and to some extent prevents some people slipping deeply into depression, but it's not a satisfactory um, uh, situation. Okay, so clearly spirituality also is is a factor um, in this. Uh, what's your take on on the use of drugs to combat uh, combat depression? Well, they're useful, but they're limited, mm-hmm. and uh, it's particularly limited when people rely on medication and don't um, don't consider. I mean, I mean, for instance. To work with somebody psychologically, uh, it takes a lot of time, both on the, and, and skill on the part of the therapist, uh, and is n- not readily available at the cost it would be to train such a person and at uh, the time it would take to train such a person. So one of the uh, 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 one of the issues is that w- that in the, for instance, in the national health services that. Uh, that people are relying on cheaper and uh, more immediate types of treatments and medication drugs come into that mm. but um, but it doesn't get at the heart of the individual's problem it's it's just symptom control really right. and uh, uh, and and I've, it's hard to say see why how uh, a cash strapped and resource limited health service could do better um, but what it's leading to, I think, is uh, is the training of mental health professionals, doctors, nurses, and others, uh, it, it, towards the more biological um, approach uh, uh, that uh, we've been talking about, and uh, not looking so uh, uh, more broadly at some of the other issues that involve actually all of us in terms of um, uh, the mental health of the community at large. I mean, if you if you ask the question, what is mental health? Uh, uh, it it's um, uh, it, it's a big question. It's one I've mm. been thinking about for many years. But it if you if you think of somebody who's in a state of fraud mental health, then there's somebody with a, a, a level of emotional equanimity, a sense of purpose, a feeling of joy, of love, a feeling that they're making a contribution on a daily basis to those around them and to the world at large, that they're making a difference. And quite a lot of people go into healthcare and mental healthcare because they want to make a difference and make a contribution. But uh, quite a lot of people also then find themselves burning out or getting exhausted, emotional fatigue and so on, because the problems are just vast and immense and they seem 
unending. Same in the pandemic with uh, health staff trying to deal with COVID, etc. Hmm. Uh, uh, and so we hear about people leaving the health professions and leaving the mental health care services. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is worrying. Uh, we're also hearing about poor recruitment. Uh, it's the image of, of uh, psychiatry and mental health care is not great, and uh, and recruitment is is uh, is suffering as a result. Mm. Right. So those are some of the challenges um, that uh, we're facing. Um, my colleague is with me, and um, he's going to be asking some questions as well. Yes. Okay. Uh, good morning, Dr. Larry. Hope you're doing well this morning. Yes, thank you very much. I am, yes, thank you. Uh, very very good uh, answers, uh, thank you. Uh, I want to ask you to what extent do you think positivity and kindness influences the mental health of individuals? Yes, I think considerably. Positivity is an aspect of what I was just discussing about what is mental health and kindness. Um, I love this word mm-hmm. kindness because it implies that we are all kin, that we are somehow interrelated as human beings. And my understanding of, of the uh, spiritual dimension of life is that, uh, is that life is a journey towards spiritual maturity so that people benefit and everyone around them benefits when our natural inclination to kindness and compassion uh, is consciously developed. Uh, what I mean by that is that people undertake what I call wisdom exercises or spiritual practices uh, on a fairly routine basis to develop positivity and kindness. And um, so I think, I think this is an area that uh, is worth, con- uh, worth stressing and worth people focusing more on, you know, to, to work towards a more global solution than just, I mean, as a mental health professional, you have to take one case at a time. But there's a more sort of global uh, issue here about how people live their lives what mental, and how they uh, look after their own mental health. And mental health is much more than the absence of mental illness, the absence of sy- symptoms. It's all these positive things that I was talking about, joy and love and making a difference, having a sense of purpose. Thank you. And, and what is the role of the love hormone oxytocin and how is this oxytocin involved in improving one's mood and feelings? Yes, well we're back now to the biology. So oxytocin is a hormone uh, rather like adrenaline. Most people know a little bit about adrenaline that it stimulated, uh, it's released uh, and fosters one's reaction when there's a, a situation of challenge or excitement or fear. Oxytocin is specifically um, stimulates in women having children, it stimulates the contractions of the womb to help the birth of a child. And also um, during lactation, uh, oxytocin is involved in in, uh, the expression of breast milk while the child is feeding, uh, the infant child is feeding. So those are the known um, uh, functions of oxytocin. But there are those who have developed this into a suggestion that it assists in mother-infant bonding, for example, and some have gone further to say it uh, it involves uh, or helps uh, people trust each other and and bond together and even recognize 
people. But it's, it seems to me that it's very hard to research those aspects of oxytocin. So, it, so our understanding, I think, at this stage is relatively limited. Thank you. And, and just last question from my side, and now I'd hand the mic to our host, Brother Valid. Um, in what ways can one lead an optimistic life? Yes. Okay. Well, I mentioned earlier the, the idea of, of, uh, of people developing uh, a routine, if you like, a, a personal growth program or a spiritual development program, where, which, which uh, I think could consist, a basic one, a simple one, could consist of five parts, taking regular quiet time every day for meditation, reflection, or prayer. Uh, secondly, appropriate study of religious, spiritual, or other wisdom material. Thirdly, maintaining supportive friendships with others who've, who share similar humanitarian and spiritual aims and values. Uh, next, regular acts of kindness and compassion. And also, I think importantly, time spent engaging with nature. Um, so what, what this does, you know, following a spiritual path, especially, I think, meditation and prayer, this, these tend to open up the seamless link between a, an individual and what we might call divine energy and wisdom, uh, through which each of us is connected to, each, to everyone else, you know, as kin, as, as family, in, in a way. And not, not only connected through this great spirit, this great spiritual realm, uh, to each other, but also to nature, to life, the planet and the cosmos. And so when I also look at your question, in what ways can one lead an optimistic life? Well, eventually having achieved a measure of equanimity, of inner calm, and the ability to stay in the moment through um, perhaps meditation and prayerful practice, it, although it sounds counterintuitive, optimism, hope, can be achieved through facing one's fears rather than avoiding them and perhaps especially the fear of death, the loss of everything and of not being. This was a, uh, an exercise that the ancient Greek philosophers recommended, that one contemplate the, one's own death so that you kind of loosen to some extent your, your grasping, your grip, your hold on your attachment to the people, places, activities, even the thoughts, ideas, and ideologies that you hold dear, so that it, it, you, you, you kind of prepare yourself uh, at, so that at any moment you are, um, you're ready for, um, you know, for not just loss and bad news, but even serious uh, uh, assaults on your uh, cherished um, attachments. and. Mm. No, thank you very much there. Uh, I mean, it's been very comprehensive uh, what you've been mentioning about uh, depression and about kindness. Uh, thank you very much for uh, coming on and I wish you all the best in the future. I understand you've also, have you written anything recently? I know you're an author. Yes, I, I, I followed up the big book of wisdom which was published uh, a couple of years ago with the little book of wisdom, which uh -huh. is it's pretty tiny, but it it does contain, I hope, uh, some little nuggets of wisdom that people might find uh, 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 interesting and of value. Okay, and uh, where is it available and how much is it? It's, it's published by uh, Hero Press. Uh -huh. uh, 6 99 is what it costs. Okay. And I think 
yeah, any bookshop will be able to order it or online. And if you have trouble, get hold of Hero Press in London and they'll um, surely make them available. Wonderful, wonderful. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, for Dr. Uh, Dr. Clifford, for coming on. Uh, Thank you very much indeed. Yes. Bye. And giving us the benefit of your expertise. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Right. Um, that was Dr. Uh, Larry Cliff, uh, Culliford. Uh, interesting what he was saying, Imam Thukhi. I mean, he, he said that you know, he mentioned five things that were quite important. Uh, they they resonate with Islamic teachings. I mean, he said that, you know, you should start off the day with meditation. I mean, Islam encourages early morning prayer, prayer, study of religion, and the recitation of the Holy Quran mm. you know, uh, is is uh, very much akin to that. Mm. Um, so it shows that uh, teachings of Islam very much um, are geared to, to our well-being, and uh, um, this is an example of that. Um, so, um, uh, are we going to have something on Islamic teachings, or do you want to? Are we going to be um, having another um, uh, Mr. Talal Rashid on? <laughs> yes. So I, I do believe we have uh, Dr. Talal Rashid. Uh, yeah, Talal Rashid. Oh, let me just uh, press the right buttons, uh, Dr. Rashid. Um, are you with us? Yeah, Oh, thank you very much for coming on. So I understand you're a micro uh, molecular bi- uh, biologist and yep. uh, and uh, advisor in the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, so thank you very much yeah, for exactly. coming on. Um, uh, statistics have shown that depression has been on the rise during the pandemic. What are the uh, what are some of the causes of depression? So basically, there are like multiple causes of uh, of depression. There's not like such a one specific cause. So basically, we know now after years of research that there are genetic factors. So this kind of uh, genetic background uh, that you know will uh, uh, help to develop depression in a way that is a vulnerability. It's not like there is kind of a specific gene for depression, but there is like a kind of a genetic background that can, you know, um, uh, let's say, sometimes push the depression to develop. So this is one thing, genetic, genetic factors. Then we have environmental factors, like, you know, difficulties in managing emotions, relations, stress, and, you know, some limiting beliefs that uh, is maybe specific to some culture. And then we also have social factors that can cause depression, like a loss of uh, reference points, breakdown of family structures, loneliness, um, you know, this kind of factor that may also help to develop um, uh, depression. And also psychological factors, like difficulties, as I said, you know, in managing emotion, that's something, you know, that's quite frequent. So I would say, if we have to reply to this question, what are the causes of depression? We have multiple causes, a genetic background, uh, genetic factors, but also environmental, social, and psychological factors involved. And often it happened that, you know, we have trigger for depression because we have all this, as I told, background, and we also have some triggers like, you know, traumatic events, changes in the person's life, uh, various illness. Uh, it could be, you know, like um, stroke, some type of cancer, Parkinson's disease. Or we can also have like chronic pain, uh, abuse of alcohol, of certain drugs uh, that you know can trigger this condition. Mm-hmm. I want to explore this uh, hereditary factor. So you're saying it's not something that can be linked to a particular gene, but there's a genetic background. What do you mean by genetic background? 
Yeah, does so it I mean, mean that, that a, because your parents have had a depression that you're more likely to have a depression? Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah, because exactly because some uh, studies um, showed that um, uh, if we have to for, um, that you know it's kind of predisposition in a way that uh. if one of the parents has developed a depression, so the probability of developing one's own depression is higher. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, so this kind of link regarding genetics is not always strong, but it might, you know, be linked. There might okay. be a link between parent depression and depression develop uh, in children. But uh, as I told you, it's more complex than this, you know, uh-huh. because sometimes there is this genetic background and the depression is not happening because um, people, you know, they manage their lives, they manage their emotions, they manage, their, you know, all these factors. But sometimes the genetic background is there and is going to develop because, you know, people will be, you know, like regarding the social factors, environmental factors, they won't handle it as uh, maybe, um, it would be difficult for them to handle all this. So it's very uh, person specific. It's mm-hmm. not, not kind of general rule. It's not that because yeah. they have the genetic background will for sure develop the uh, disease. It's not uh, like this. It's okay. This genetic okay. background may be like uh, an extra factor Mm-hmm. That will lead to depression. But if you handle well your life, mm-hmm. and if you manage to take treatments, and if you manage, you know, um, to manage your emotions, to to get help for this, then you know you might uh, not develop or at least less severe depression. Right. So it's a combination of factors that can come into exactly. Yeah. Okay. That come into play. So those are the causes you mentioned. Now, what about the treatment? What would you say? Uh, is the tr- are the current treatments for uh, what are the options uh, for treating depression? So one thing I want to mention first is that depression is a disease, and this is very important because for uh, every disease we really know uh, uh, go to see a doctor to find the best treatment possible. And I want to highlight this because you know in some culture. Uh, depression is not accepted as a disease. It's more like, you know, it's like a condition. Uh, it's the more uh, that the person is responsible for this. And, uh, you know, all the responsibility is like put on a specific person, but it's hmm. the case because, in as you know, a disease is caused by, you know, biological changes in the body, by chemical changes in the body. And so we have to treat the underlying mechanism. I mentioned this because recently in a Richard Mercat, uh, the question was, you know, asked to our, our beloved Hazur, mm. and Hazur replied saying that uh, people who are facing depression, they really need to seek help by a physician because, like, it's a medical condition. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we need medical treatment mm-hmm. because some other things will help for sure, but you need to treat this condition because it's a medical condition. Okay. So regarding the treatment we have today, it will depend on the severity of depression. If it's mild, moderate, or severe. In kind of mild depression, um, um, you know, we the, the GP you know, can prescribe like uh, exercise or uh, what we call group therapy, psychotherapy. Uh, is that you know you have to uh, go regularly on a regular basis to see a psychotherapist to have the sessions to discuss to explain the problem and to try you know to. Uh, to because sometimes we it's uh, now let's say demonstrated that the way you talk and you explain your problem it will help you also uh, in understanding you know maybe the causes or what's going on in your life so talking therapy 
psychotherapy and exercise is, I would say, the first-line treatment uh, for depression. Mm-hmm. If your depression is moderate and it's uh, uh, becoming a bit severe, uh, then you can have, let's say, uh, what we call an uh, anti-depression therapy uh, that might be prescribed. So I want to highlight what is anti-depression therapy because, you know, it's not well understood. Um, so first, anti-depression therapy is kind of therapy that will help uh, to treat the underlying mechanism or cause of depression. And studies uh, showed that, you know, uh, in uh, depression, in the brain of uh, of uh, the person who is facing depression, there is biological changes and chemical changes, because we all have a biological and chemical balance in our brain. Uh, what I call chemical biology or biological balance is that we have, you know, these compounds, chemical compounds like um, serotonin, noradrenaline, uh, in our brain that are very important for the function of the brain, and it's also very important for them to be balanced to be not uh, in a less amount or uh, excessive amount to be balanced. So what happens sometimes, and it's a study showed that in depression, we have sometimes um, rejection of the level of this chemical like uh, serotonin or noradrenaline. And because of the lack of the concentration or lack of amount of this uh, uh, chemical compound in our brain, that can lead to depression. So what we'll do, the antidepressants so this, uh, this medication, the aim is to reestablish the level of this chemical compound in our brain because, our, because and in this way to help restore the function of, on, of our brain properly and then help to release depression symptoms. Mm-hmm. And this antidepressant therapy, we have many now of a new generation. We have like a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are like also uh, very easily prescribed because they are like well tolerated by patients and, uh, and effective. And we also have like a three uh, cyclic antidepressants which are more known for a long time. But this kind of antidepressants are going to restore the level of chemical compounds in our brain that are very important for brain function like serotonin and noradrenaline. So this is therapy that is, you know, treating one of the cures of depression. So that is, that's why it's very important. And I, would, I want to highlight that there are effective treatments, mm-hmm. quite well tolerated. And if someone is facing moderate or severe depression, it's very important to go and see the physician because effective treatments are available. And this effective treatment will help um, the life of the patient. Okay. And last, last yeah. thing, very quickly, very quickly, in kind of very severe um, depression, we still have, you know, some option like brain stimulation. So brain stimulation, you know, we all uh, have seen in movie, you know, sometimes uh, some patient having electroshock, and electroshock are also prescribed, but in very severe condition, and they are also effective. So I just want to highlight that uh, if the depression is very mild moderate, severe, or very severe for all kinds of severities as treatments, effective treatments, so it's very important to go and to talk to the patient to get help. Mm. Okay, great. Um, my colleague uh, Imam Tokir is uh, going to be asking some questions as well. Assalamu Thank you for joining us this morning, Dr. Tala. I wanted to ask okay. you, some of our, uh, some, of our stu- some studies have shown that uh, kindness and tolerance and respect towards one another, they are all important factors that contribute towards our well-being. So could you kindly comment on this, and especially as you have French background and there have been a ban 
on religious symbols such as the hijab in certain spaces. Do you feel like this may have a negative impact upon individ- individuals' well-being? Zakumullah, I'm sorry for this question. It is a very important one. So I just want to, regarding your first part of the question, if kindness, um, there's a ring between kindness and you know, uh, well-being and depression. So in fact, there are studies showing that now more and more that kindness itself is very, it can you know, help um, um, individuals facing anxiety and depression. Indeed, there's like a, a study um, over 3,000 people uh, led in, it was led many years ago in the, by University of Texas, and one of the outcomes of the study was that people who did regular volunteer work, they had fewer symptoms of depression uh, than those who did not in the study. And then another one that is very, very interesting, it was led um, by um, uh, Dr. Lynn Alden quite recently as well. Uh, and this study showed that it was performed in undergraduate students uh, who reported high levels of uh, social anxiety. Uh, and in this study, uh, the group who performed acts of kindness, uh, the level of anxiety was, uh, less, uh, was much more reduced in this group than the control group who did not perform acts act of kindness. And the definition, definition of act of kindness was like very simple, like saying hello, smiling when you were seeing someone uh, on the street, or was helping someone open the door, or helping someone, you know, uh, carrying heavy bags. So this kind of act of kindness. And this uh, act of kindness, you know, um, helped reduce, to reduce the level of anxiety in this study, showing that Kindness can really help this kind of conditions. And now, regarding what's happening in France today, indeed, we are facing some, um, uh, uh, I would say, uh, serious uh, issues and trouble regarding the, the whale uh, in France. And because it's, uh, it's something that probably you know, uh, the, the whale was banned in, uh, in, uh, in school, in primary school, secondary high school, um, uh, in 2004. Uh, so now almost 20 years ago. Uh, so now if you're a student, you can only uh, wear a whale when you are going in, in university, in public university, because even in some private universities, ha- even if it's not banned, they have their own uh, internal uh, policies and, and the rules uh, where they are trying to you know, prevent uh, and uh, to, um, yeah, they, are, they don't want you know, to whale to be worried. So I would say overall, overall, uh, it's something that is trying to be banned in France uh, by rules or by, you know, like uh, internal policies in private uh, in private uh, structures. And uh, when you talk with uh, with um, women in, in France, they are very frustrated by this kind of, uh, of regulation because uh, we have very talented um, uh, Muslim women in France, uh, lawyers, uh, physicians, uh, scientists, but unfortunately because they can't um, work and they can't bring the talent to the service of structures that are not accepting their will, they can't, you know, uh, let's say, um, put their talent to the service of specific uh, field of uh, or service of structure because they are uh, because of they they are willing to wear wear well because they want to you know uh, practice their faith. Uh, they can't do this. So in this case, uh, uh, surveys show that in France. It's leading to frustration in the young generation 
of the Muslim women because they are not able to to practice the talent and they have to find alternative routes like you know uh, trying to go uh, to establish their own uh, companies their own you know um, uh, service to be consultant to be a private consultant to be a entrepreneur so it's because they are you know they have to find a solution to manage this frustration and they are receiving this kind of rules and, re- and regulation uh, uh, as aggressive uh, because you know they are saying that we are not accepted as how we are, and when uh, in a society you are not accepted accepted as you are, it leads to frustration, and frustration will lead at some point to social exclusion, isolation, and as I told you in the beginning, that um, uh, depression has multiple factors, social factors, environment factors as well, and these factors of frustration, social exclusion isolation are part of environmental factor that can lead to the development of depression and anxiety at some point. So indeed what's happening today in France, especially for women, uh, Muslim women, is something that if it's not, you know, taking into account or seriously, that will lead to frustration uh, in the upcoming and current generation and uh, in the upcoming generations. And it will it can lead to the exclusion of this uh, very talented Muslim women of the society and that can lead to, to this kind of uh, health disorders. Great. Uh, Dr. Talar Rashid, you have a PhD in uh, molecular biology and you are a medical advisor in the pharmaceutical industry. Thank you so much for joining us this morning and sharing your expertise on this subject matter. Thank you. Jazakumullah for having me and having us. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So we are discussing this topic on how does kindness affect our mental health. And uh, looking at the Islamic perspective of, of it, if we look at the life of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, we can try to explore and we find strength and nobility of character and sincerity of inner or inner calm, serenity or inner calm, which comes with communion with God in the fullest sense and nobility, generosity, magnanimity of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, shows itself most of all in clarity and kindness to all men and more generally to all beings. And there was no narrowness or pettiness in the soul of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and no limitation in giving of himself to others. His blessed life is full of examples that have kept generations of Muslims in, inspired. And uh, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he himself, he has said that every act of kindness towards one another is charity. And at another place, he said that, Inna Allaha rafiqun wa yuhibbu rifqa, that Allah is kind and loves kindness in all affairs. And for example, if we look at just one part of his life, uh, we see that when he was in Mecca and he had proclaimed to be a prophet, there was an old woman at that time who was a bitter enemy of Islam. And every time the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, would pass by a a particular street, um, she would always throw garbage at him out of uh, hate or enmity. But the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he did not react to that, but rather he showed patience. And so she continued to do this on a daily basis until one day 
she did not do this and the holy prophet peace be upon him he inquired that uh, you know she's been continuously doing this so where where is this old lady today and he inquired and he found that that well she is not feeling well and the holy prophet peace be upon him he went to go see her and uh, to look after her and when that old lady found out that the holy prophet peace be upon him has come to visit her she was so moved that you know i've been showing hate towards this man and I've been throwing garbage on a daily basis and now this man has come to look after for me, look after me when when I'm not feeling well she was so moved that she had accepted Islam so this is the life of the holy prophet peace be upon him that he had always shown kindness to every human being be it uh, the the muslims themselves but also to the bitter enemies as well who had hate for Islam he had even shown love to them um i i wanted to read out a message uh, that we received from a regular listener uh khalid banusavi writes that these two topics are fantastic and related to two attributes of loving allah the almighty and loving his creation he said that segment 1 is is trusting and loving allah and segment 2 is loving and being kind to his creation they both work hand in hand by loving allah the almighty and we should automatically show love and kindness to people thus making us happy god willing so that that's is common i wanted to read uh, brother willie if you can just please yeah. conclude the show for us yes uh, yes uh, so um, this is from uh, myself and imam toki uh, a word of gratitude to our producer farwa and uh, nargis in preparing this uh, program researchers kulsi award nehalati salia bakhtiar and hana ahmed are also worthy of our gratitude for their hard work as is akebem and non making sure that everything ran smoothly uh, as far as the technical side of things are concerned uh, we were uh, we are also thankful to our contributors our experts steve jones joined us who is a practicing psychotherapist we were also joined by dr larry Califord, uh, who is a retired physician and psychiatrist, and then lately we were uh, uh, joined by Dr. Talal Rashid, who is a molecular biologist and editor of the French edition of the uh, Review of Religion. And lastly, but not certainly, but not least, uh, thank you to all our listeners for joining in uh, today. Do join us again Monday to Friday uh, on the Breakfast Show, seven to nine o'clock. Here's the nine o'clock news.